This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. From ancient conflicts between empires to modern-day wars fought with advanced technology, war has been a tragic and pervasive feature of human history, claiming countless lives and inflicting immeasurable suffering. Oftentimes, the horrific consequences of war are felt many, many years after the war ends. But why do wars happen? I'm Dashran Johan and this is Today I Learned. On the show with me today is Assistant Professor Peter Beattie. He's a political economist and a political psychologist at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Welcome back to the show, Peter. How are you? I'm good. Thank you, Dashran. I want to start this conversation by asking you, what would you say are some of the most common causes of war? Well, uh, yeah, that is a big question indeed. Uh, I guess some of the most common causes of war is perceived threat, uh, perceived insecurity, uh, also uh, uh, the perception of a gain to be had, uh, economic gain, resource gain. Um, those, I guess, would, would be the, the broadest categories uh, that I would, I would answer that question with. Now, General von Clausewitz, a 19th century military theorist, he once said, and I quote, war is the continuation of policy by other means, end quote. Um, what do you make of this quote? I think it's quite accurate. I've, I've seen it also sometimes translated as war is the continuation of politics by other means. And you can see that, that root, that essence in probably any war you can think of, um, you know, the one that just pops into my mind is the U.S. Civil War, where you had a, a political economic conflict between the southern states and the northern states. And instead of being able to resolve that through purely political uh, compromise or, or uh, agreement, uh, war was the, the, the option to continue this, this political economic dispute. Uh, but you can find the, the same route in, in any war you can think of. Uh, one group of people want to, you know, live under one form of political economic system or divide resources in one particular way. Uh, they cannot achieve what they want via purely political means, whether that is uh, debate, dispute, compromise, uh, concessions, etc. And so violence is the uh, the last resort. How do you view the second half of this century? Because Russian revolutionary Rosa Luxemburg once said um, it's either socialism or barbarism. When you look at the writings of Karl Marx, they also essentially point towards that. But when the second half of this century actually came along, it wasn't barbarism, right? There seems to be um, a sense of relative peace, at least in highly advanced countries. We look at the US, EU, their allies and key trading partners. However, at the same time, bloody wars have continued to take place in many parts of the third world, more often than not caused by these established superpowers. I'm talking about the US, the EU and so on and so forth. So how do you view the second half of this century? Well, I think Rosa Luxemburg had it right on that socialism or barbarism. I think that is particularly clear today when we, we are facing an ecological catastrophe uh, and we need a, a systemic transformation of the, the global political economic system. Uh, so in that sense, I think that that uh, that saying is, is more true today, perhaps, than, than ever. 
Um, but on that question of, you know, did the second half of the 20th century, you know, primarily feature peace or war, you know, as you said, it, it, it's, it's both. Uh, among the, the most powerful uh, uh, states, uh, there was peace domestically. Uh, but the reasons for that, I think you can drill down and find that it's fundamentally a, a change in uh, military technology with development of nuclear weapons, the cost of war. Uh, was viewed by as too high by both sides in the Cold War. Um, although, you know, the, the risk of nuclear accident and miscalculation was ever present, and we almost uh, destroyed ourselves as a species several times during the Cold War. Um, but yeah, as you said, you know, in the rest of the world, there were plenty of, of wars and violent conflicts. So I think the to, to get the best answer to this sort of question, I would recommend a, a book by Shipping Tang, uh, called The Social Evolution of International Politics. Uh, for anyone interested in international relations or international politics, uh, this is the book I, I recommend as a kind of one-stop shop. Uh, if you just want to read one book, uh, check that out, because Tang puts uh, all of these questions into historical perspective using evolutionary theory. So he starts with you know, the emergence of, of uh, Homo sapiens as a, a species, uh, our form of social organization for uh, tens of thousands of years were was in uh, small tribes that were aggressively egalitarian. Uh, that is, uh, everyone was was fundamentally equal within the the tribe, uh, and there were mechanisms used within these societies aggressively to prevent people from gaining a dominant position. But this began to change when. Uh, you had uh, uh, climate changing, making sedentary agriculture a more viable subsistence strategy. And then once you have these settled uh, societies that rely on agriculture, the uh, surplus, the calories that are produced, uh, was much greater than the, the calories that could be produced by hunting and gathering. That allowed for bigger population sizes. And then all you needed was for one society – in a, a sedentary agricultural uh, uh, economic system to become aggressive and uh, you know, take over other people's land, uh, wage wars, et cetera. And then every other society in the system needed to militarize, even if only for purely defensive purposes. Right. And once you have this threat in the system, then you, know, you have the, uh, the kind of spread of more militarized societies, uh, the young need to be inculcated into, you know, militaristic ways of thinking, lionizing, uh, uh, you know, soldiers, uh, learning military discipline, uh, getting the idea that it's it's heroic and ideal to fight and die and kill for uh, your own group, and then you have basically this this same dynamic of uh, the best defense is a good offense because you can never be sure that you know, your neighbor or some further flung uh, society is not going to invade you and kill you. So you have to invest a, a certain degree of your uh, uh, societal wealth in weaponry, in training soldiers, etc. And, you know, what, what IR scholars typically call this is the problem of anarchy, that there is no higher authority, there is no police force on the international stage that you can call for defense. Uh, you really have to provide it yourself. You have to do self-help. So basically, that was the the situation that humans were in from roughly 
10, 12,000 years ago uh, until arguably World War II and uh, immediately afterward the development of uh, nuclear weapons when because of this change in military technology, uh, but also to a, I think, lesser extent, but still significant extent, uh, greater economic uh, uh, linkages across the world that made uh, traditional military conquest uh, because of nuclear weapons more threatening, more more dangerous. Both sides could be completely destroyed. In fact, the entire species could be completely destroyed right. with a, a nuclear exchange. Um, but also that you didn't really need to do the the, the same kind of uh, wars for economic gain that uh, you had in previous eras, because you could get, you know, the, as the expression goes, you know, why buy the cow when you can get the milk for free? <laughs> uh, in this in this sense, it's if what you want is a kind of un- unequal terms of trade, where you get more of the of the products of the rest of the world. Uh, then you have to give in return. So if you're if you're be able to uh, produce the most high value added, high tech, uh, large returns to scale kinds of products, and you're able to monopolize those products, and the rest of the world has to trade uh, a much greater uh, degree of of their labor, you know, they're, they're producing commodities, they're producing raw materials, they're producing food, but they're not they're kept out of uh, those aspects of the economy, those sectors uh, where you know the, the that are on the cutting edge of technology, where uh, you have increasing returns to scale. Well, if you have that kind of a system, then what's the point of of conquering another country to get right. their resources? You can get their resources in much the same way on the same unequal terms, simply through the the normal operation of the economic system. So then, at Around uh, uh, World War II, the, the system kind of shifts from one in which the best defense is a good offense to one in which uh, defense is the best defense, so, so to speak. So all the, the, the major states, uh, the most powerful states, seek to maximize their, their defensive capabilities and uh, offense becomes less of an attractive option for them, except insofar as, you know, you mentioned all throughout the, the third world. You had uh, uh, plenty of wars in the second half of the 20th century, and uh, that's exactly correct. So between the the, the major states, uh, the focus is on defense, maximizing defensive capability. But you can you know have all sorts of proxy wars uh, in other parts of the world where the risk of direct confrontation is very low, uh, but you're still there's still terrible bloodshed Uh fundamentally to to increase the the power of one side or the other. Peter, I'm very curious because you're a political economist as well as a political psychologist, your social psychologist. How do you see these two um, areas of study or schools of thought intersecting when it comes to the big picture question of why do wars happen? Well, I think there's a lot of... I think psychology plays a, a, a massive role. I mean, even in some of the most basic uh, concepts in, in IR, they have a, a psychological foundation. So, uh, you know, you could even investigate the concept of anarchy from a, a, a psychological perspective. You know, the, the famous line being anarchy is what states make of it. That is that perception of danger from the fact that there is no global cop that you can call. Uh, that is 
fundamentally psychological. It's it's how we perceive the world and where where we perceive danger and how we think the most appropriate response to that perceived danger is. Um, but even in the uh, another basic concept like the security dilemma, the idea that you know one state uh, builds up its military capabilities in its own mind or in the mind of its leaders for the purpose of uh, deterring an attack. Well, in the minds of the leaders of other states, they see that as potentially uh, threatening to them. That if if you if some other state has built up more military capabilities, well, then they could choose to use that uh, aggressively against us. So, psychology is at the is at the root of uh, all of all of these tensions, and I think uh, uh, it's a very natural mix uh, to include psychological variables in your analysis of, of how the international system works. On the show with me today is Assistant Professor Peter Beattie, who is a political economist and political psychologist at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. We continue this discussion after the break. Keep it here on Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Today I Learned. I'm Dutron Johan, and on the show with me today is Assistant Professor Peter Beatty, a political economist and political psychologist at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, and we're exploring why do wars happen. So, Peter, to what extent do ideological differences, especially when we look at it from a sort of social perspective, um, what extent do these play a role in starting wars? Because, for example, when we look at the Cold War, um, it is often framed as, especially at that time, um, by the me- uh, US and Western media as a freedom and liberty um, versus authoritarianism and so on and so forth, right? How do you see it? For me, ideas in, in our heads, that's a psychological phenomenon. So that's, the, that's a proper focus of study for psychology. So when you look at it that way, I mean, even just simple nationalism is a psychological phenomenon. We've created these ideas in our heads about which part of the planet is a part of which imagined community, you know, which nation. So even on that level, it's, it's uh, uh, psychological. Um, but when you get down to uh, ideologies, that's also, you know, ideas and heads. That's also a, a psychological phenomenon. So I think that, uh, you know, ideological differences, just like differences in ideas about what part of the planet belongs to which country, are also a big part of of uh, the conflicts that lead to war. When you think of the uh, uh, the Cold War, you know, it's it's really hard to disentangle exactly what is going on there because you know i think there's a very strong case that that can be made for uh the ideological conflict between capitalism and communism or socialism being the primary driver you can see you can clearly imagine how in the minds of uh, the richest people in capitalist societies that the idea of socialism and communism would be so fundamentally threatening you know their their elevated status in society would be destroyed if that ideology and its proponents uh, gained power in their country. And on the opposite side, uh, capitalism and the capitalists that rule capitalist states are a threat. In fact, they're not even just a a threat. They are the problem that 
socialists and communists are, are trying to solve by moving societies into a more you know egalitarian state directed or maybe uh, uh, democratic socialist uh, uh, direction so yeah I think uh, uh, ideological conflict is a is a big part of it but you know you can also argue from the other uh, side that uh, perhaps these ideological conflicts are not you know, the real driver, but rather it's the, the traditional uh, uh, fight for power. And, right. and you know, re- regardless of, of what ideology the, the competitor for power uh, ascribes to, there's going to be that, that conflict anyway. And you could say, you know, if you look at a lot of the uh, proxy wars, uh, the a lot of the the, the uh, overthrowing of governments uh, by the U.S. government around the world. Uh, a lot of the, the the leaders that were overthrown and uh, political movements that were were fought against. You know, you could say they 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 were called communist or socialist at the time, but you know, if you look at uh, uh, Arbenz in in Guatemala, you know. It's very unclear, or even Castro at the at the beginning of the the Cuban Revolution. It's very unclear that they are, you know, in their heart of hearts, or even less less deeply that, that they really are true believers in communism. But rather, it seems like the more common uh, a set of ideas in the heads of people fought against by the capitalist side during the Cold War was really just kind of a nationalism uh, that varied in in different places. But the basic idea was. You know, we're going to use our natural resources primarily for the development and improvement of the lives of people right here, whereas the the capitalist side of the Cold War wanted those resources to be put on the the global market where the most powerful states that monopolize the the high value-added production can get more easy, cheaper access to them. So – it's uh, that's probably not a very satisfying answer, but I think it's it's just fundamentally very difficult to disentangle, uh, you know, the the struggle for the struggle for power, the desire to maximize uh, power, from uh, perhaps the the ideological veil that that covers it, or perhaps it's not a veil at all. Yeah, but, and, and that's know, what a, I want to press further, right? Is it a veil or is it not? Because I'm wondering, are factors whether it is you know nationalism, whether it is just um, other forms of group identity, um, you know, whether it could be even race, religion, so on and so forth. Um, are these factors uh, often the causes of war? and I'm talking about cultural factors, right? Or are they weaponized by the ruling class to push for war when the real reasons are often economic or wealth factors, right? The, the competition for resources or, or just sheer greed in, in some instances. How do you see that? Well, I see it as both. I, I really right. can't uh, definitively say that it's it's always one or always the other. I think all of these, these well, both of these competing explanations, they're all rooted in ideas in people's heads, right? If it's the ruling class who thinks that by waging war against another country, they're going to maximize their power and, and get uh, cheaper access to resources, that's fundamentally an idea in their head. Uh, ethnic conflict, again, just ideas in heads. Uh, so it's hard for me to really distinguish between the two and say that one set of ideas in heads is at all times, the dominant influence and the other set of ideas and heads is just the kind of veil. Um, I think they're they're both 
uh, causal. I think they both uh, play a role, and it, it depends on the, the specific conflict or the specific war. Uh, and I think I think probably historians are, are best placed to try to uh, distinguish between these two when it comes to any given conflict or war. So how would you see, let's say, um, the, the European um, colonialism project or, you know, the very concept of race, um, um, or, you know, ra- race as a, as a hierarchical thing, right? Um, there is an argument often by whether it's, it's the likes of Angela Davis or just uh, many leftist thinkers that the very concept of race in and of itself is a sort of um, imagined creation for the purpose of um, sort of uh, economic or, or wealth accumulation by, let's say, in this particular case, let's say the, the white supremacist and, and so on and so forth. Um, so it's, it's more of like just a creation, but ultimately what it is about is about wealth accumulation. Well, while racism is a very real thing that people feel, the concept of race in and of itself, as we perceive it today, is sort of a, a sort of a, just a figment of our imagination created for mm. the purpose of wealth accumulation. How do you see that? Yeah, I would I would agree with that. I mean, that's, you know, an example of it's a specific historical phenomenon period in which and historical period in which uh, ideas of race as a, a scientific uh, reality uh, develops, and I think there it's it's just, you know, the utility of this idea is so great for some people that it's just too suspicious that it's just a a, a, a coincidence, you know, that 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 these ideas of of race as a pseudo scientific reality uh, are developed, right? So if you have that that strong economic driver that, you know, you, you uh, European colonial powers need. Uh, extremely cheap labor to operate these these massive plantations, uh, and the 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 cheap the cheapest labor at the time is uh, people kidnapped from the African continent. Uh, then it, you, you just see this this perfect uh, situation for or perfect environment for ideas that justify uh, this kind of of brutality and exploitation. And the the pseudoscience of race is just the perfect way of justifying it. That you say that, you know, there are there are these massive differences between groups of humans that just so happen to correlate with, you know, skin color and 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 minor uh, differences in in phenotype, and that these differences actually run so much deeper that you know the the, the brains of people are completely different, and some people don't really even mind being enslaved because you know, that that sort of of thinking that the the ideology of of race as a biological you know meaningful difference, uh, it's just so suspiciously convenient that it it seems to me that it's really that what's really driving the creation of of race pseudoscience is the the underlying economic uh, dynamics there where the the, the demand for uh, ex- hyper exploited labor then creates the environment for ideas to, to thrive that justify this. And you see this in, in research on uh, cognitive, cognitive dissonance reduction, where people have this really uncomfortable feeling because of a contradiction. Like they, they notice that they've treated someone very poorly, but they think of themselves as a good person. And that creates cognitive dissonance. So you need to reduce that somehow. And all sorts of ways are, are found uh, to reduce that that dissonance, 
Uh, and in, I think in this case, you have uh, cognitive dissonance between ideas about, you know, humans being one family, that uh, all humans have, you know, the same basic capacities, uh, the same desires, the same duties, the same rights. But then at the same time, you have, you know, hyper exploitation by enslaved people on plantations. Well, how do you reduce that dissonance? The pseudoscience of race is a is a very useful way of doing it. Absolutely. How would you describe the military-industrial complex and its relationship to starting and perpetuating wars? And what are the what's the relationship between this uh, militarism and capitalism? Well, I think you could you could really just go back to you know Eisenhower's speech where he, he coins that term, the military-industrial complex. He talks about the the unwarranted influence uh, of of people who are within this complex. And again, it, it, it's really fundamentally psychological. His argument was that if you have so much money uh, and investment and resources being poured into the production of killing machines, uh, the you know, military contractors, then people who are in that industry are going to feel a very strong pressure. Maybe they don't even recognize it. It's probably more uh, subconscious to develop ideas and beliefs that justify their position so that that justify greater military spending. If your life's work is in designing new weapons, uh, it's just easier for you to see threats around the world, to, to, to feel insecurity, and also to, to develop beliefs that justify this uh, for moral reasons, that you know the, the other side, the enemy, is evil and we are good. And so, you know, the the continued flow of resources into our pockets uh, in order to build more killing machines is actually a very good thing. So that I think is really the the core of the the military industrial complex. You know, once you 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 have a massive arms industry, it's self perpetuating because of that core psychological driver. Right. And uh, there's also, of course, more economic drivers. You know, the increased spending on on the military after World War II, at the beginning of the Korean War, basically saved the U.S. from a, a, a mini recession that began right after the end of World War II, because you had massive government spending to militarize the, the U.S. economy during World War II. As soon as that, that spigot gets turned off at the end of the war, uh, you have you know greater unemployment, uh, lower growth, etc., until it's restarted with the beginning of the Cold War. So you, you have like, you know, the individual psychological drivers of people who are profiting from military spending. Uh, but you also have a kind of uh, broader driver in the sense of the top officials in the U.S. government looking at the U.S. economy and realizing, you know, we need some sort of, of Keynesian stimulus. Military Keynesianism worked really well during World War II. As soon as it ended, we see a, a bit of a, a recession. As soon as it ramps back up during the Korean War, that problem is solved. So you also have a motivation uh, from a, a kind of macroeconomic perspective to, to keep uh, the military industrial complex going. You, you wouldn't have the same kind of psychological driver if you didn't have people who were personally materially benefiting by owning companies that get these government contracts to produce killing machines. Right. So in a in a different form of uh, political economic organization, you could imagine uh, a structure whereby the benefits are not so evenly concentrated 
And perhaps then that would uh, influence the, the, the thinking of people who are receiving more uh, uh, distributed benefits if, it, if it's more uh, uh, widely dispersed. Uh, but that's that's more of a matter of, of speculation. You can see very clearly, though, in the in the present you know, capitalist form of economic organization, how these benefits are so concentrated. And then that produces a very powerful psychological pressure for people in that position to, you know, uh, develop beliefs that justify that the position that they are in. And then, of course, they have the, the means to spread those beliefs by funding, you know, think tanks or professors that agree with them and, and also see a threat around every corner. Uh, so I think that in a nutshell, is how capitalism enters that picture. So here's the million-dollar question. How do we prevent wars from happening in the first place? Not just the million-dollar question, but the million lives uh, uh, question. Right. Well, I mean, I, this is uh, kind of a, a far-flung uh, hope, but you know, I, I think with, with greater uh, political and economic integration, uh, when we we stop dividing ourselves into so many in-groups and out-groups that currently take the form of, of nations, uh, I think that would be probably the, the most fundamental way to, to reduce uh, war. Um, you know, just as a kind of joke, another way of doing it would be to kind of reframe who the in-group and out-group is. You know, I, I wish that there were some uh, uh, scientists who could develop technology powerful enough to really trick uh, the planet into believing that we're about to be invaded by some uh, alien force. <laughs> and if they could pull off that deception, uh, you know, psychological theory would, would predict uh, very confidently that people's thinking would change massively. The, the relevant in-group and out-group would no longer be, you know, the U.S. and Russia or, you know, this country versus the next country. It would rather be homo sapiens humanity versus this <laughs> alien threat. <laughs> but, you know, the, the other way of, of getting that same uh, result would be greater political integration, something along the lines of like a, a global federation of, of self-governing regions. But of course, that's, you know, that, that seems so far uh, away on the horizon, unless there's, you know, some massive change in the in the short term that it's almost you know just an academic exercise you you brought up um you know this creating this this sort of um greater existential threat right like an alien invasion type of thing and maybe that will just wake people up but you know when i think about it we do have a sort of existential threat you know right now which is the climate crisis but I don't, you know, I look around and I'm not, you know, nothing I'm seeing is giving me this enormous jolt of hope that all our mm -hmm. world leaders are coming together to to face this this climate crisis, right? There's this existential threat to humanity, regardless of what nation state you're you're a part of. In fact, it reminds me kind of like Game of Thrones, where you have this this White Walkers coming. They are coming and they're, they're this massive threat, and their their <laughs> army is growing and they're becoming more powerful, but but, you know, the, the people in Westeros, they don't care. They're doing their, their politicking goes on. You know, they want to sit on the Iron Throne. They are more focused on those kind of things. So how do you see that, that we do have an existential threat, yet we don't that's, see this massive cooperation going on? Yeah, that, that, that's a great uh, analogy. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that. But yeah, that, that kind of fits perfectly. Yeah, I, it's incredibly frustrating and dispiriting, really, to, to see, you know, what are the, the, the most 
pressing debates and conflicts in the, in the world today. All of this talk, uh, at least in the U.S., about you know uh, confronting China, and that's the big thing that everyone has to be thinking about and worrying about and planning for. When you know, it just seems from a, a the perspective of anyone who's rational and has a brain that the only and most pressing concern is uh, achieving a degree of international cooperation that we've never seen before in human history in order to transform the global economic system for long-term sustainability, right? Like uh, Guterres uh, put it, you know, uh, making that pop culture reference, uh, everything, everywhere, all at once. That's <laughs> exactly what we need. But instead of doing that, we're still stuck in this dumb monkey way of, of thinking where it's, you know, that nation uh, versus this other nation and, and China is posing a threat because it's getting too powerful. So the U.S. needs to balance it. Uh, you know, you have people saying precisely that now, first of all, being incredibly unself-aware, incredibly uh, deficient in one of the most basic, you know, attributes of a, of a good military thinker, which is strategic empathy, trying to understand uh, the other side. You know, and I was uh, in the in the Marines briefly, we had to buy one book. It was The Art of War. In The Art of War, they say, you know, know your enemy, know yourself, and you'll never lose a battle. But we seem to have completely lost that idea of, of knowing the enemy, because then that makes you a, a bad person. That makes you a puppet of the enemy. Right. But, you know, we're, we're so caught up in, in this just completely counterproductive idiocy when, you know, like you said, what we what the climate crisis, what the ecological crisis more broadly should be doing is basically the same thing that a, a, an imaginary alien invasion would right. do, which is to, to expand our in-group, to, to think of ourselves not as members of nation states, but to think of ourselves as a species on this planet that absolutely must uh, cooperate to a massive degree in transforming our, our economy so that we can you know, have future generations living in something that resembles civilization. So do you then think that the division of the world into competing nation states is unsustainable or, you know, perhaps has outlived itself? Keyword competing. This is this is kind of uh, zooming out and, and getting really theoretical. But uh if you look at, at evolutionary theory and you look at the, the development of life uh, on this planet, every progressive stage in the in the development of, of more complex life forms uh, has involved an increase in cooperation and communication. So think of at the very beginning, you have molecules that just so happen to replicate themselves because of the laws of physics. It happens that this molecule that uh, got put together through various forces happened to be such that it could take elements from the environment and create a copy of itself. What's the next stage? The next stage is the is a cellular organism. What does that require? It requires a, a high degree of cooperation among all of the, the individual molecules, all of the constituent parts, and a greater degree of cooperation so that the cell can uh, act coherently and for its its own benefit. And then you can go from the, the, the cell to, you know, multicellular organisms that, again, requires greater cooperation, greater communication. Uh, then with our species, the fact that we dominate the planet and may even kill life on this planet <laughs> is the result of, of 
us being able to cooperate and communicate to a far greater degree than any other species. So it seems to me from the perspective of evolutionary theory that, you know, in terms of time frame, you know, who knows, but the the trend is in that direction. You could even see, you know, from from small king, well, from small tribes to, to small kingdoms to uh, nation states today, you see the exact same pattern. So I don't think it's it's uh, uh, fanciful at all to 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 see the most uh, a likely future direction for the evolution of, of human societies uh, to be greater political integration. Uh, now, obviously, there are, there are massive impediments, but, you know, there were massive impediments to the first self-replicating molecule ever forming a cell. There were massive impediments to the first cell ever producing a, a multicellular organism. So, you know, when you when you disregard or, or just put to the side uh, the question of timing, like when do you think something like this is, is more likely, I think the, the trend in that direction is certainly evident from uh, a the, the the deep history of life on this planet. So I just have one more question for you before we wrap this conversation up. Do you think working class people often fall into the trap of whose side are you on um, whenever a war break, breaks out, right? Um, what would be a more constructive way for working class people to look at and address the issue of war? Because broadly speaking, um, you know, when you look at the the great wars that have come and gone, it rarely, at least from my vantage point, seems like it's caused by working class people. Um, you know, it, mm. it feels like they are caused by, you know, people with enormous wealth, enormous power, enormous interests, and, and so on and mm. so forth. So how do working class people approach this? You remind me of uh, my favourite uh, musical artist, The Coup, uh, a line in one of their songs, uh, they say, uh, war ain't about one land against the next. It's poor people dying. So the rich cash checks. It's hard to argue uh, with that uh, from from any historical period you could imagine. So I think that kind of gets at the, the, the core of your question, like what should working class people do when confronted with uh, national level conflicts? is to try to just get away from from thinking of the war as a as a matter of you know the entire nation versus another entire nation and start looking at it as the the ruling class of one nation against the ruling class of another nation using the majority of the population uh, to kill each other in order to get you know what they want out of uh, the conflict so you know that that's not a new idea at all uh, Certainly over the past century, you had plenty of people trying to educate people to think exactly like this, to, to think uh, uh, outside of the, the, the nation versus nation paradigm, that it's not one land against the next, right? Um, that obviously didn't uh, work terribly well over the, the past century, but I don't think that's reason to, to give up hope. I think, if anything, that's a reason to redouble efforts to educate people to you know, stop letting their natural intergroup bias attached to the nation state, the imagined community of the nation, and instead broaden that that in-group, uh, perhaps first to their economic class and, and second to all of humanity. And on that note, Peter, thank you so much for joining me today. 
My pleasure, Dashan. That was Assistant Professor Peter Beatty, who's a political economist and political psychologist at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. If you missed any part of our conversation, you can also check us out on podcasts. We're available on the BFM app, bfm.my, or pretty much wherever you get your podcasts from. I'm Dashan Johan, and this has been Today I Learned, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.